Father Mary Purissima. Uh, we have one announcement. The month of November is dedicated to the Holy Soul. On all the days from today, November 1st through November 8th, a plenary indulgence, applicable only to the poor souls, is granted to those who visit a cemetery and pray, even if only mentally, for the departed. Partial indulgences are granted to those who recite lots or vespers of the office of the dead, and to those who recite the prayer, Requiem Turna Donis Domine Lux Perpetua Luciades Requies Contemplace, which is eternal rest granted unto them, Lord, and perpetual light shine upon them. May they rest in peace. So, you get a plenary indulgence every day starting today to the 8th, and it's applicable to poor souls. So, ideally, you get, uh, it's, you get uh, a soul out of purgatory to please God every day, which is a great thing. Okay. After this, I saw a great multitude which no man could number, out of all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palms in their hands. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. But today is the Feast of All Saints, the day on which we commemorate all the saints of God, both the canonized saints and the uncanonized saints, those that are known to us and those that are known to only God. Uh, we're honoring all the holy angels and men, all the citizens of heaven. So we're celebrating the glorious triumph of the members of the mystical body, the glory of our head, Jesus Christ, who is no longer visibly present on earth, who has been hidden out since his ascension, of remaining quietly present there in the most blessed sacrament of the altar, and working during this time through his saints. And that glory, working through his saints, is shining forth today in the church. It shines forth through all the wonderful works of his saints, who are the holiest members of his body. We know that all the glorious accomplishments of each and every one of the saints is totally and completely due to the fact that Christ is dwelling in them and living and working through them. Of course, that's the object of our holy religion, is for Christ to live more and more in us and to work more and more through us in that way. We're incorporated into him by our baptism, and that's what we're trying to do as we grow in holiness, is have more and more Christ working through us rather than ourselves. We know that each and every one of us is called to that same state of holiness, is called that same de destiny as the saints in heaven. So we should each pray, among other things, to act hope every day, since we hope to be saints. That's what we've been placed here on earth to become. That's the purpose of our life. And ultimately, the only really real failure in life is the man who fails to become a saint. And so we hope and rely on the intercession of our big brothers and sisters in the mystical body, the ones who have successfully made it to heaven, to reach down with their prayers and help us with our difficulties uh, here and now, most especially to get there as well. And on that note, it's a really uh, a, a important traditional practice when you enter a church to greet the saints who relics are there by Santa Gloria Be. And you have so many relics here. But in every church, you're going to have that. And when you go, you should say a Gloria Be in honor of the saints that whose relics are in that church. And they'll bless you when you do that. It's a traditional thing. A lot of people uh, somehow have forgotten, unfortunately. Our holy patron, St. Peter, says we should always be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within us, yet to do it with gentleness and reverence. So we ought to be able to give a reason for our hope and reliance on the intercession of the saints. And because we find ourselves in this country living in a decaying Protestant culture, we might be challenged, easily challenged, in fact, to give a reason for our hope and intercession of the saints 
by our fundamentalist evangelical neighbors. So given all that, if you walked out of Mass and bumped into an evangelical Christian today, could you answer him if he asked you something like this? What do you Catholics think you're doing with your anti-biblical doctrine of the saints? In the first place, the Bible refers to saints as the Christians who are still alive, but the people you call saints are dead. In the second place, how can you say saints hear your prayers? In the third place, 1 Timothy uh, 2.5 clearly states there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus Christ. You can't pray to man, you can only pray to God. And how can you escape the clear teaching of Scripture? And Scripture says, Thou shalt not make unto thyself a graven image, nor adore them, nor serve them. And yet you bow down and worship statues of the people you call saints. Isn't this idolatry? How can you Catholics defend these practices that you should oppose to the clear teaching of Scripture? Now that would be a pretty typical objection if you got in a serious conversation with them. And we're going to make sure in this sermon you'd understand how to answer that. Because it's important to answer students like that. We can actually reach out. But those people need what we've got. Everybody needs what we've got. We've got the true religion. We have the only cure for hell. And everybody needs it. Everybody. So those are good questions. Probably a lot of adults here have already had them thrown up in their face at one time or another. So, could we answer that guy right now? Are we prepared to gently make defense of such important facts about our faith? So we're going to briefly look at how to do that. We'll lay down two uh, first things. What should our attitude be? And then we'll give two general principles. And then we'll tackle the individual questions that we just proposed. Her attitude should always be, we're just trying to explain the faith to an uncatechized Catholic who has peculiar ideas. So that way we don't get condescending, we don't get angry, we don't get frustrated. We're just going to give a reason for the hope that's in us. This is really important to remain calm. We have to have two basic principles down flat. First is if we're going to evangelize someone, we're going to try to bring someone to the true faith. We've got to make some effort to speak to them in their own language. How ridiculous would it be if we set out to be missionaries in Mongolia and we want to preach the gospel to the poor Mongolians in English and expect them to want to become Catholic? It'd be completely nuts. It's, uh, it's very fitting for a priest to sing the pr official prayers of the church to God in Latin or church Slavonic or, you know, in a liturgical language. But when he preaches to the faithful, I'm not up here preaching to you in Latin or Church Slavonic. We speak our native tongue and we preach. So if we're going to evangelize fundamentalists or evangelicals, if we're going to evangelize the people who think of themselves as Bible Christians, then we've got to make an effort to speak to them in their own language, which means we need to sprinkle our conversation or explanations with quotes or paraphrases from those or examples that we've taken from Scripture. We should use biblical terms instead of our common Catholic terms. Not that there's anything wrong with our Catholic terms, they're the proper terms, but because they're not going to understand them. For example, even though we might be talking about the communion of saints, we won't use that term when we're speaking to a Bible Protestant. We use the biblical image of the vine and the branches. It makes our point, the same point we want to make, but it makes it in their language. Then we're not going to cause a problem by using a phrase they naturally be suspicious of. See, you know, if we say something like the community of saints, they're going to think, oh, great, more Catholic uh, stuff. Where's that in the Bible? And we've already defeated our own purpose by, by doing that. By using biblical imagery, it actually makes the concept clear and acceptable to them. And there's another good reason for using the Bible. After all, it's our book. 
we have to be embarrassed that so many people without the true faith know more about our book in general, in a confused way, but in general than we do. So that's the first principle, is use the Bible. And the second basic principle is we can only answer one objection at a time. So if our questioner starts by asking us about the saints, and we start answering the branches off of the Blessed Mother, Purgatory, whatever, you just say politely, that's a very good question right now. We need to get a handle on the questions you raised about the saints. If you don't stick to this rule, it's like fighting hydrates. You start getting one question, and seven more pop out. And before you know it, you have questions from all over the place, and you'll be overwhelmed, and it'll dawn on you after a while. You never answer a single objection before you drop it drawn into another, and drawn into another. So you have to keep the, the conversation tracking. So two basic principles are use the Bible and biblical terminology and refuse to budge from the point of hand. Now let's really quickly tackle the specific objections that our evangelical friend raised against us when we walked out of Mass. Okay, first objection. What do you Catholics think you're doing with your anti-biblical doctrine on the saints? The Bible refers to saints as the Christians who are still alive, but the people you call saints are dead. Now, to answer that question, we need to understand that when a, a Bible Christian hears the word saint, he thinks of the true Christians here on earth, and, and, and that's certainly a legitimate thing. Uh, you can see that in Colossians 1, 2, and Philemon uh, 4 and 7. But what we would call the church militant, and of course, when we use the word saint, we're typically thinking of true Christians in heaven. Not always, when Pottery Peel was around, people would call him a saint. But typically, we use it, we're thinking about the people like we have the relics right now, what we'd call the church triumphant. So we need to remove that obstacle. First, by agreeing that, that the Bible does refer to the true Christians here on earth as saints, then pointing that it also refers to those in heaven as saints. So here's the answer. The Bible teaches in 1 Corinthians 6, 2, that saints will judge the world. Know ye not that the saints shall judge the world? The Bible teaches in Luke 22:30 that among those judges will be the apostles. He shall sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So the saints will be judges, and some of the judges will be apostles. And therefore the apostles, whom we know are in heaven, are saints. And so the clear teaching of the inerrant, inspired work of God, which cannot contradict itself, is that those in heaven are saints. And the Bible also teaches that the saints in heaven are not dead. They're more alive than we are. As our Lord says in Mark 12, verse 27, He's the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's the God, not, of, not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, we're going to speaking an awful long time after the death of Abraham, and after the death of Isaac, and after the death of Jacob. But he says they're living. So God says, I believe, and that settles it. So that's the answer to the first objection. The second objection was, how can you say that people in heaven hear your prayers? They can't hear your prayers. Another really common objection. So you answer by saying, let me share the gospel with you. Hebrews 12, 1 states that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Who are those witnesses? They're the saints of the Old Testament, which the 11th chapter of Hebrews is chock full of. In chapter 12, verses 22 and 23, it states that we have come to innumerable hosts of angels, to the general assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, the spirits of the just men made perfect. So the Bible says we're surrounded by angels and the spirits of just men, and the Bible calls them witnesses. What kind of witnesses would they be if they couldn't see and hear what's going on? We also see the elders and the four living creatures who represent the saints and angels in heaven are offering the prayers of those on earth before Christ our Lord. We see that in Apocalypse uh, chapter 5, verse 8. When he took it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, 
Each of the elders held a harp and gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the holy angels. Okay. Third objection. 1 Timothy 2.5 clearly states there's only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. So you're being unbiblical when you ask for the mediation of saints. You can't pray to man, you can only pray to God. The answer to that is in the 15th chapter of the Gospel of St. John, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is that beautiful image of the vine and branches. He's the vine and Christian are the branches. And the Christians will bear fruit as long as they abide in him. Those that don't abide him will be cast off into the fires of hell. St. Paul explains the same doctrine in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans 12. All Christians are a member of one body with Christ as the head. So it's the clear teaching of Scripture that all Christians are united in Christ, which is precisely why the Bible teaches you can stand in the gap or stand in the breach for someone else, that you can pray on their behalf. That's in Ezekiel, Prophet Ezekiel, chapters 22 and 13. And you can ask the person, don't you ever pray for anyone? How can you pray for anyone? There's actually only one mediator between God and man. How? It's easy. If we're united to Christ, if we're praying in His holy name, we're praying by Him and in Him. And of course, the saints in heaven are also in Him, so they too can pray in His holy name and by Him and in Him, as we see them clearly doing in the book of Revelation, in chapter 6, where the martyrs on the altar in heaven are praying that God will avenge them. Also, the word prayer has more than one meaning. When a Catholic says he's praying to a saint, what he means by that is asking the saint to stand in the gap for him, to pray to God for him. As the scripture says in James 5, chapter, or chapter 5, verse 16, the prayers of a righteous man avail thus much. Who's more righteous than the friends of God who see him face to face? Fourth objection. How can you defend the practices of bowing down and worshiping statues, idolatrous practices which are opposed to their teaching of scripture? I went to public school, I had all these things all the time. I used to have a bus driver that was a Baptist preacher, so we'd get this stuff. He's going to convert to little heathen Catholics, you know, so we get this stuff daily. Catholics do not worship statues even by bowing down or kneeling in front of them. Any more than someone who is worshiping by taking his hat off when the flag passes, or in a parade or when the body of a fallen hero passes in a procession or graveyard. Just like taking off a hat gives honor to the country, it's representative of the flag, or the heroes of the fallen. Uh, soldier, fireman, or policeman. So also an act of reverence before a statue says honor given to God and his saints and his holy heroes. If we saw an evangelical kneeling down and praying with a Bible in his hand, we wouldn't think he's worshiping the Bible. Images and sculptures of creatures are certainly not forbidden by the Bible, otherwise God would have broken his own commandment when he commanded two golden cherubim be placed on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. He commanded angels be embroidered into the veils of the tabernacle. Only images and statues of angels were in the tabernacle of the temple. There were no statues of men in the tabernacle of the temple because there weren't any men in heaven. Only angels were in heaven. Uh, it was shut to mankind from the time of Adam's sin until Ascension Thursday. But now there are men in heaven. Their statues and images remind us of the great deeds of these holy heroes of God. Okay. So that was a quick answer to the evangelical's objection. Very quick review and we'll close. We need to have a patient, gentle attitude when we're speaking to these people, just like we're speaking to an uncatechized Catholic. We need to use biblical terms of imagery. We need to stick to the topic. The answer to the objection of the Bible refers to saints as the Christians are still alive, but who you people call our saints are dead, is that Jesus already answered that problem when he said that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the living and the dead. And all Christians everywhere, living in heaven and earth, can be called saints. 
The answer to the objection of the saints in heaven can't hear our prayers is that Hebrews 12, 1 says we're surrounded by witnesses. Witnesses are actually witnesses, uh, and God said so. The answer to the objection in 1 Timothy 2, 5 clearly states there's only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ, and so it's unbiblical to ask for the mediation of saints. Is that because we're all branches in the one vine, all members of the one body whose head is Christ, Christians can stand in the gap as we see in Ezekiel 22.30, and pray on behalf of others, and that includes the Christians in heaven. The answer to the objection that we worship statues is, no, we don't. We don't worship statues, but we do honor the heroes of God whom they represent. And so now, on this feast, uh, the great feast of all saints, we ought to be ready with gentleness and reverence to fulfill the request of our holy patron, St. Peter, to give a reason for the hope which is within us, to give a reason for our hope and reliance on intercession of saints, to any of our evangelical fundamentalist relatives, friends, or acquaintances. God bless you and the saints and blessed of God. Appreciate you.